Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. The guilt market. Sleepy, safe, boring. Or unsuspected systemic risk that nearly blew up the UK pensions industry, forced the Bank of England into emergency bond purchases, caused the Chancellor to be sacked, and made the government reverse its flagship economic policy. I want to know if we're now out of the woods, and if other markets are vulnerable to sharply rising bond yields and similar doom loop dynamics. And in today's dumb question of the week, what is a haircut? Okay, let's get into it. On our episode three weeks ago, we talked about the mini budget and the fallout, and we said, it's crazy, it's going to have big repercussions. But that was kind of before it all got really crazy and scary, wasn't it? (laughs) And it just kept going up and up. So we thought, it's time to revisit it and time to talk about what's happening in gilts, because it has been extraordinary. Yeah, I think it's been historic, in fact, and it's going to have repercussions, you know, for generations in the UK. This will be touted as what can go wrong. You know, this will be the kind of salutary lesson which is used to warn people about ignoring experts. We're going to hear about it at every single budget for every year. (laughs) (laughs) Not just for the UK, though. You know, I wonder if populist governments around the world are starting to think twice about just throwing caution to the wind. The timing was extraordinary. So we just emerged from a period of official national mourning straight into a period of official national chaos. (laughs) (laughs) And we were kind of a laughingstock while it was ongoing. And it was interesting that it finally put the UK on the fixed income map again. You know, we're back on the map as we were a century ago because we created volatility in the US. The UK tail was wagging the US fixed income dog. But how did that happen, though? Because we're such a small market compared to the US. Did they just get scared and think, oh, are we going to have the same problem? I think to some extent, yeah. I mean, yields are correlated across different markets. So if the yield goes up in the UK, it'll go up in the US as well. So if there's a bond sell-off here, it'll kind of have ripple effects globally. I mean, the reason why you can kind of see, which is partly that people are scared that what happened here could happen elsewhere. The US certainly has similar funds to the ones that caused the problems in the UK. Plus, international investors will invest in multiple markets. So if they're worried about their investment in one market, you know, it might make them change their allocation in another. So you could trigger bond sales across the world if the UK is the first shoe to drop. You know, people are thinking, well, who's next? So maybe let's rewind and just remind ourselves what actually caused the gilt market to have such a sharp sell-off. Because I was looking at the Bank of England's letter and they said on Wednesday, the 28th of September, The intraday range of yield on 30-year gilt, so how much they've moved in the day, was 127 basis points. And that was higher than the annual range for gilt moves in all but four of the last 27 years. You got kind of an annual scale move, or bigger than an annual move, in just a day. And the fixed income market's so opaque. I mean, most people don't even know what a basis point is. It's a percentage of a percentage, so it's 0.01%, which sounds like a nothing move, right? 1.27%. You think, you know, so what? The equity market moves by twice that on an average daily basis. However, in the bond market, when you talk about points, that's something that causes jaws to drop. And 1.27% moves are kind of, well, almost legendary. I mean, if you have a risk model, usually you try and shock it by going back in time. And, you know, you'd say, okay, well, what's the biggest move there's been in the last 50 years? And we'll shock the market like that. And we'll bait our risk systems around that. You kind of simulate what would happen if that happened again. Yeah. 
which is a great way to do things rather than just looking at normal market movements. But in this case, it was such a big move that nobody would have used this in their risk models. It was just too extreme. I read that the Bank of England said that typically the risk models that pension funds were using would have the ultra extreme daily move as 100 basis points. And this exceeded that significantly. And what triggered it? Well, I think it was the messaging. And I think it was the combination of unlimited downside in the electricity and gas market. You know, the government would have been liable for that. And it was going to fund it with guilt to plug the gap. And then at the same time, you're cutting taxes, which is going to reduce the government's income, which seems to make no sense. I mean, it's literally what someone who's economically and financially illiterate would do. So everyone says it spooked the market. I don't know why we always have to use the word spooked, but that's what everyone does. (laughs) Yeah, I think it did spook the market. And I think if you're a bond investor and you're buying something which you think is kind of safe, well, if the government is suddenly flooding the market with more of that stuff, you know, it's like buying a house which is situated in a beautiful countryside location, and then suddenly a huge housing estate is built around your house. Well, what's going to happen to the price of the house if supply increases? Well, of course, it's going to go down. So I think that's really what worried people, the amount of new issuance which would be required in order to fill the fiscal gap. And that's the difference between what the government spends and what it earns in taxes. So basically what we're saying is the sums didn't add up. In a massive way. And they didn't even ask for the sums to be done, did they? They didn't even ask the Office (laughs) for Budget Responsibility to tell them what the effect was going to be. And so the market thought they're just discarding the institutions as well as making some crazy decisions. And it's odd that I think the growth plan is a good thing. I think having a plan for growth is great. But I think the messaging and the funding and also the planning was just very poorly executed. And I think the markets are just very unforgiving when it comes to politicians riding roughshod over markets. Absolutely. The trouble we have, Roman, is that events are moving so quickly now that we're recording on (laughs) Tuesday the 18th in the morning, and then this goes out on Wednesday morning. So as we're recording, the UK Prime Minister is Liz Truss, and the UK (laughs) Chancellor is Jeremy Hunt. Let's just say that. (laughs) Oh, it's, it's worrying that you have to say that. I mean, it's almost feeling like we are in Italy. And if you look at the yields that the UK... <laughs> Sorry to all our Italian listeners. Both of you, yeah. No, if you look at UK yields, we blew out past Italy. I never thought I'd see that. Yeah, we don't have their weather or their food, so it's just disastrous. No. But it's interesting that Italy, they've just voted in a populist government. And I wonder if they're going to go down a similar route now. Yeah, they'll think, oh my God, we might be the new UK. (laughs) But the thing to say as well is this move in gilt markets, it seems kind of technical to people, but it has massive effects on the real economy. As we've said before, cost of mortgages goes up, cost of borrowing for companies goes up. So it's just not good news. But then I think what turned this from just a really bad thing into something that could be potentially catastrophic was the issue with the pension funds, wasn't it? Yeah, because this was essentially the destabilising force which amplified the moves. It's interesting how it came about as well. It was actually for good reason. Again, you know, people wanted to ensure that pensions were fairly safe. So, you know, there's a lot of legislation in the UK that was designed around that. Now, if you have a defined benefit pension in the UK, it sits on the corporate balance sheet. And it has done since the late 1990s. There were changes in accounting standards at that time that meant that pension deficits had to be reported. So when the company reports, they'd have to say what their liabilities were. 
and what their assets were in their pension fund. And if there was a gap between the two, if you haven't got enough assets to pay your pension holders, it would appear on the balance sheet and it would hurt the company's prospects. Whereas previously, you just didn't know or care. So maybe let's just quickly clarify what is a defined benefit pension, right? Because the word pension is kind of used as a catch-all in the UK and it refers to several very different products effectively. So the different kinds of pension, you've got the state pension, which is paid out by the government to people of retirement age and is basically funded from government taxes and borrowing. Ponzi scheme. <laughs> okay. Roman's coughing Ponzi scheme. Sorry, Michael, bit of a cough. Controversially there. <laughs> <laughs> But that's not what we're talking about. That's nothing to do with this. No. Then similarly, you have state employers like the NHS or teachers where their pension is kind of similar to the state pension, right? So it's just paid out as a liability of the state. That's not what we're talking about here. And then now most private sector pension schemes are what's called defined contribution, where your employer and you from your paycheck put money into some assets and hope that it grows to pay your retirement income. The risk there is carried by the employee the employer doesn't really have to fill any shortfall if the assets don't perform. That's not what we're talking about here either. Nope. What we're talking about is the fourth and final pension fund scheme, which is defined benefit private sector schemes, which is basically where the employer has guaranteed a certain level of income to employees on retirement and the employer and the pension scheme is taking the risk that the assets don't underperform. Now, these were very popular for a long time, but kind of went out of fashion with that reform you mentioned, Romin, because it was a liability to the company and with falling guilt yields, they were just very expensive for companies, right? Because you had to put in a lot of money to kind of guarantee that you could pay out those benefits in 30 years time or whenever your employees retire. And if markets crash, you've got an unlimited liability, which potentially you have to fill up with your company's money. I think that was a beautiful summary. Well done. I thought that was beautifully done. <laughs> I mean, it's important to clarify what we're talking about, right? Because pension isn't a pension isn't a pension. Everything is so different. Absolutely. So defined benefit pensions were the problem, like you say. And it's because of the way they're reported, but also now because of the way many of them are run. Previously, what you could do is if you know what your company's retirees' age distribution is, so you know, you've know you got a record of who left and when, how old they are, and you also know from actuarial models when they're likely to die. So you can project this cash flow stream into the future. You can actually quite accurately predict what your liabilities will be. And these stretch decades into the future because people live a long time. So you could do something really simple. Kill your employees. Well, that's, that's one option. It might be cheaper to do that. I'm not sure. That's what I said. They built an incentive to kill all their employees. <laughs> well, there's a business model right there. But no. So let's imagine a really simple way of doing this. You could just have a bond which matures at every point in time when you need a certain amount of money. And it pays out exactly the right amount on that date. So let's say you've got liabilities stretching out for the next 40 years. You'd have 40 bonds and you'd buy the amounts required to pay out exactly to match your liabilities year by year. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. You're just taking the money you're going to need, working out the present value of that. So how much you're going to save now, putting into a bond, just leaving it there, not touching it. <laughs> and then you can have it and you can give it to your staff in 40 years or whenever they need it. Which sounds simple. But the problem was that returns on guilt were very low. And, you know, we entered this new era where we had ultra low interest rates and that lasted for quite a long time. And that got baked into gilt coupons and yields. So the implication there is that the company needs to put aside a lot more money now because they're not going to get such a good interest rate over the next 40 years. 
Yeah, so let's imagine a payment in 30 years' time. If we put it into the equity market and we assume a return of, say, 6%, you'd only need to put £17 aside today to pay out 100 in 30 years' time. Whereas if we put it into gilt, say, which had a return of 3%, you'd need to put in twice as much. You'd need to put about £41 aside. And this is what we said earlier, the schemes got very expensive for employers. So which would you rather do, put aside £17 or 41 Well, I'd rather put away the lower figure, but then got more risk there, haven't I? Yeah, but if it's less capital intensive, you can see why people veered towards higher returning assets. But the problem with equity is that it doesn't have duration, which means that if interest rates increase, the value of equity doesn't necessarily increase or decrease. So if you're trying to match your assets and liabilities, the liabilities were actually discounted using interest rates. So if interest rates increased, the value of those liabilities would fall, but the value of your assets, if it was pure equity, wouldn't match it. So what people adopted wasn't pure equity, it was a combination of guilt, so you'd have a matching pool which would match your liabilities in terms of when it would pay out, and then the matching pool wouldn't have a high enough return, so you'd juice things up a little bit with leverage, and one way of doing that is taking the guilt you own and then lending them out and receiving cash in return, which you can then invest in something else. So that's called a repo transaction, sale and repurchase. And you pay a small interest rate for that repo process, but it essentially means that you can lever up your guilt holdings. So you can juice your returns to the leverage side and you can juice it up through owning equity. So that's what people ended up with, a kind of mishmash of equity, other types of investment like fixed income stuff, guilts, residential mortgage-backed securities in the UK, maybe even property funds. So what you do is you build up this portfolio that should have enough to pay off the liabilities in the future. So that all sounds great and just kind of normal for investing, right? We're building a portfolio, it's diversified, it should grow and all's fine. So where did this kind of idea of the doom loop come from that the pension funds were going to have to start selling their assets in a fire sale? What was this all about? Well, this is a kind of unintended consequence of the way these things are structured. So what you have to do is ensure that the interest rate sensitivity of your assets, that's your investment pot, and your liabilities, which is what you're going to pay out, which is discounted using interest rates, we have to ensure that those two match each other. And that was typically done with a derivative called an interest rate swap. So is the idea of the interest rate swap that it's kind of getting rid of one of the main risks a pension fund faces? Yeah, it's this mismatch between the assets and liabilities, their duration. So what ideally you'd have is if interest rates move up or down, your assets and liabilities increase or decrease in value by exactly the same amount. Yes. So you don't care what the yield curve does. But, and this is the big but, because you've got the derivatives, you've got counterparties who force you to pay margin. The other problem is that you've got leverage in some cases with the repo transactions. Now, what happens is when markets are very volatile, you have to post more margin. But markets were so volatile, we've already talked about the size of the intraday moves, that the capital cushion that the companies had put aside was very rapidly exhausted. So I guess that has two implications. How can you solve that as a pension fund if your capital buffer is exhausted? Well, either you can go to your sponsoring employer, whose scheme is, and says, give me more money so I can give it to the bank. Which many of them had to do. Or you can just start selling your assets, your gilts, for example. So you've got gilts falling in value, which causes people to have to do more margin calls. 
So they have to sell assets, which are, oh yeah, the gilts again. So we have this kind of death spiral where prices are going down on gilts. The funds are having to sell gilts to produce more capital in order to pay their margin calls. Which causes gilts to fall again. Yeah. Which causes more funds to have to sell gilts. (laughs) And we're in the apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) So something had to break the loop and it was the Bank of England. They had to step in as a buyer of last resort. And they did. You know, they did it and they did it at the right time. You could argue they're a little bit late, but still no complaints there at all. I think it was really nice to have some adults in the room. Because that is one of the prime roles of a central bank, isn't it? It's not just about setting interest rates. It's acting as the lender of last resort and the market maker of last resort. Financial stability is really what they're about. Rates are part of that and keeping money stable and the value of money stable, that's inflation. But they also do a lot of regulatory stuff. So presumably they're going to be regulating like crazy after this to ensure this doesn't happen again. Well, it's interesting because this whole thing came about because of regulation, which was meant to make pensions less risky. Because the previous problem with defined benefit pensions was, as you say, they weren't really a liability of the employer. So they kind of blew up and left pensioners in the hole or left the state having to pick up the tab. So this was designed to solve that and match assets and liabilities. But all it did, law of unintended consequences, was make them at risk of what is effectively a bank run. Well, you could say they took too much leverage. And, you know, I think that's justifiable. If you'd have just put more money aside in your pension fund, you wouldn't have had to lever up so much in the first place. But the problem with leverage is you only see it once it causes a problem. And I suspect that what we'll see in other countries now, maybe in Holland, maybe in the US, is whichever funds do have this embedded leverage, it may start to be exposed now. But you can bet they're checking for this. Yeah, I would hope so. Because when you think about it, a pension fund should be one of the only asset holders in the market, which is not subject to these short-term dynamics, right? They're long-term holders of assets where their stakeholders, the pensioners, can't just suddenly decide to pull all their money out, right? So they should not be subject to sort of forced asset sales. But you've introduced this leverage and made yourself subject to this risk. So Matt Levine, in his newsletter, put it quite nicely, I thought. He said, I know this is bad, but I find something aesthetically beautiful about it. If you have a pot of money that is immune to bank runs, over time, modern finance will find a way to make it vulnerable to bank runs. That is an emergent property of modern finance. No one sits down and says, let's make pension funds vulnerable to bank runs. Finance, as an abstract entity, just sort of does that on its own. I'm not sure that it does it on its own. (laughs) The reason why I say that, I mean, I'm a bit cynical and old, but think of it from an investment bank's point of view. So you've got this huge pool of money, 1.3 trillion, 1.8 trillion in the UK, various estimates. Bigger than our GDP. Yeah. And then at the same time, these are real money funds. That's what investment bankers call it. A real money fund just takes the money they're given and invests it. They buy stuff. Now, you can't sell them any derivatives because they're not allowed, strictly speaking, to hold derivatives. And derivatives can be very profitable. So wouldn't it be great if we had some kind of scheme where we could sell real money funds derivatives? Oh, okay. (laughs) There we go. So LDI could be described as a kind of marketing thing so that investment banks could sell derivatives to real money funds. And so this created a market where there wasn't a market before. But it was serving a purpose, right? Oh, yeah. No question. You could say that about any of these financial instruments which are cooked up, which is that they service a need. Sometimes it's slightly a grey area, whether it's a good idea or not. 
than whether it acts in the interest of the client. And usually it takes a blow up to realise that wasn't the case, that it wasn't in the client's interest. But you could argue, and I'm sure many lawyers have, that at the time of creation, it made perfect sense. It helped everyone. But there's no question that these LDI schemes were very profitable for the institutions who ran them. And what happened eventually was that if you're a small fund, you couldn't really do all of the kind of swap overlays, that kind of thing yourself. So what you do is you pool it into a fund which was run by one of the big asset managers like BlackRock, for example. Now, the problem was that BlackRock stepped back from the market once the volatility really started to kick off. So a lot of these small pension funds were in a real bind at that point. Because what would have happened if the Bank of England hadn't stepped in and started buying gilts? Presumably, we'd have entered this doom loop and the asset managers and the banks on the other side would have just started liquidating the LDI funds. Yeah, there wouldn't have been a choice in terms of which assets to sell. So when you do have one of these fire sales, all that would have happened is the prices of gilts, for example, would have fallen much lower and the volatility would have got much more extreme. Which would have made these pension funds insolvent? Like, Because this is basically a liquidity crisis at its heart, right? They can't sell their assets quickly enough to raise capital, to post as margin, to keep their LDI strategies in place. But a liquidity crisis can turn into an insolvency crisis, right? Yeah, because something which you thought was okay, which was essentially safe, was just trundling along at a value of 100, suddenly falls to a value of 50. And that's going to send repercussions through all of the different asset market pricings. Let me tell you a story about a guilt, Michael. <laughs> My favourite kind of story. <laughs> so this was a happy guilt. It was going to mature in 2068. It was quite happily paying a coupon of 3.5% twice a year, and it had done so since it was issued. You know, it was trundling along at a price of 105, 110, until we get to September of 2022. Now, when the mini budget was announced, within days, the price of that had fallen to below 80 the point at which the Bank of England stepped in, suddenly the price shoots back up over 100, stays there for two days, and then it starts plummeting again. So only now that we've had the mini budget U-turn has it started to climb back up. And yesterday it was trading at just under 90. If you can take that example and kind of multiply it by, I guess, a trillion, (laughs) you get an idea of how volatile this market was. If the Bank of England hadn't stepped in, I think the shock, the kind of tsunami, would have been that much higher and that much deeper. So let's just clarify, what did the Bank of England actually do? If you actually look at their website, they've reported it. So they've got a list of daily purchases they've made. What they started to do was to buy long-dated gilts. So, for example, the one I just described was one of the ones they bought, and that's what pushed up its price. So they came out with this announcement. They said, Every day, we're going to buy up to £5 billion worth of long-dated government bonds. But then they didn't actually have to buy that much when you looked at it. It was kind of like the announcement itself pushed down the yields and saved the prices of government bonds. It was just the threat. No one wanted to fight the central bank. And if you actually look at their purchases, they just made three days of purchases, really. And they weren't huge. It was £1 billion. 1.4 billion, then 1.2 billion. And then effectively, they stopped buying. There was a few dregs on the other days. Yeah, I mean, it was less than 100 million on those other days. But then finally, towards the end of the period, they said, look, we're not going to buy any more after October the 14th. That's the last day. So that was Friday last week. And they kind of built up the purchases towards the end of that. And they said, oh, look, we'll buy inflation-linked bonds as well. So that was 3.3, 4.4, then 4.7 billion. But then they stopped. You know, that was it. 
That was the moment people feared, wasn't it? So Friday last week and then going into Monday where the Bank of England, so yesterday, wasn't actively involved in the bond market. They thought, oh, are yields just going to spike again? But that didn't happen. And I guess partly because the government decided that all its policies were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Which did calm things down. But, you know, like that bond that we discussed, the price is still well below where it was before everything kicked off. So in a certain sense, we've kind of dented the car. Somebody's come with a hammer and kind of knocked out some of the dents, but it's not a new car anymore and it's not got the same shine about it that it had previously. No. So if you want to lend money to the UK, you're going to expect more income. Yeah, because it's interesting when you look at the risks a bond market usually prices in, you've got things like liquidity risk, right? So if the bond market is less liquid, you're going to pay a premium for that credit risk. So if the issuer is less credit worthy, you're going to pay a premium for that. But then you've got something which has been introduced recently, which I saw Chris Giles of the FT mentioned, which was the moron premium. Do you want to explain this? It's technical, isn't it? So, (laughs) So this is the additional premium which you have to pay because of mismanagement by the government. So it's interesting, they've actually got a graph of it. This was a tweet from Chris Giles, who estimated it. And it's roughly 100 basis points. So if you compare the yield on UK government bonds before and after that budget, that's the more on premium. It's the additional premium you pay because of financial mismanagement. So this is Chris Giles of the FT, economics editor. So it's not like just some crazy guy tweeting this. But it's kind of um, a real thing, though, isn't it? It's pricing in of political risk, effectively. Yeah. And I think, you know, a populist government will have to pay more if they're going to issue in the debt markets. And that means everyone in their country will also have to pay more for their mortgages, for their borrowing. So will the companies in that country. So maybe let's just look at what survived from the mini budget, right? Because it's not a lot. So the mini budget said corporation tax was going to stay at 19% rather than 25%. That's been reversed. It's going up to 25%. It said the basic rate of tax was going to come down from 20p to 19p. That's been scrapped. They've already scrapped the abolition of the higher rate of income tax. So that's going to stay at 45%. VAT free shopping, scrapped. The off payroll working rules and kind of tax avoidance stuff, that's been scrapped. The only things I can really see that are staying are the reversal of the rise in national insurance and the stamp duty cut and the removal of the cap on bankers' bonuses. That's happily going to (laughs) stay. I guess the other thing to talk about is the energy scheme. It is changing. So the original proposal was the government was going to cap consumer energy prices for the next two years. What they've done is said, we're actually only going to guarantee that for the next six months. After that, we will make it more targeted. So it's not for everybody. They don't know exactly what they're going to do yet. And that's going to have a cost for consumers. But that was the one that really shocked me because that was the one where they had unlimited downside. If markets had spiked, you know, to 10 times their current prices, the UK would have been completely on the hook for that. And they'd have funded it with guilt. Yeah, because a lot of people are saying, well, European countries have also done similar schemes where they've effectively subsidised consumers. But what they've done slightly differently is they've had kind of like windfall taxes on the other side of it. So if gas prices rise massively, the state will cream off the profits and sort of funnel it to consumers. Basically, there's a kind of healthy feedback loop. Yeah. And energy traders won't be able to take the other side of it and hope to milk the UK government for unlimited funds which is probably a bad thing, as the government's now realised. So I think it was inevitable, given what happened in markets, that the government was going to have to row back on a lot of its mini-budget, which now, if we think about it, 
is a micro budget. <laughs> Not a lot survived of it. But I think in terms of its repercussions, it's going to be absolutely huge. This is my worry now, which is that one of those repercussions will be austerity. I think the wrong reading of this, the kind of completely destructive reading of it, would be that what we should be doing is for the government to spend much, much less and to go back to the politics of austerity. And the reason why that's a bad idea is that if you're going into a period of economic weakness, government spending is probably one of the ways that you can soften the blow. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to spend a huge amount of money in order to do that. Targeting it is a good idea. But if the government starts cutting back on spending, going into a recession, at the same time as the central bank's tightening policy, that could create a very deep recession. So I'm worried that people will read the wrong thing from this. So I saw that Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, announced he was forming an economic advisory panel to guide government policy. And that was Robin's pitch to join it right there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so Jeremy, if you're listening, just DM me. (laughs) But I think you're right. There's the danger here that we go too far the other way, isn't it? We kind of overcorrect and have too tight fiscal policy when, you know, we were about to embark on too loose fiscal policy. And also it was the tax cuts combined with increased spending, but massively increased spending. That was the real problem. What I think the government is doing here, dare I say it quite sensibly, is trying to say we're going to be super tough now. We're reversing everything. We're not going to spend any money. Because what they want to do is see guilt yields fall. So when the OBR does its forecast in seven days' time, the cost of government borrowing that goes into that forecast will be lower, and therefore they'll have to cut spending less. I think they're trying to game the forecasts by forcing yields down for a little bit. Yeah, because you want the cost of funding to somehow recover. At least you want it to recover when the forecast's being done and it makes the hole in the budget look as small as possible. Yeah, I think... (laughs) I think that's probably true. I think at the moment, the UK is still looking like it's in a fairly weak position economically. So we've still got a lot of the problems that we had before. So simply fixing this mess up is not going to be good enough. You know, I think we still have to see through this period of weakness that we're going to have over the next year or so. And I'm slightly concerned that the government's distracted with other issues right now about a change in the top of the Conservative Party when they should be much more focused on getting us through this crisis. When we started this podcast, we had a rule that we were not going to talk about politics. And (laughs) what the markets have done is made us row back on that. We reversed it as much as the government's reversed their mini budget. (laughs) (laughs) But look, political risk is a very important part of investing. It's the most difficult part of it because it's so unpredictable. You can build all these models about, you know, what's the fair yield on government bonds based on nominal GDP, but nothing would have foreseen this mini budget and the sequence of events that led up to it. Yeah. And I think there's just an overestimation of really what governments can do, in a sense. There was an article in The Guardian by Duncan Weldon a couple of days ago, which had a quote in which I liked, which said that in a country like Britain, being an economic policymaker is more akin to sailing a boat than driving a car. A government can tack and trim with a greater or lesser degree of skill, but in the final analysis, it cannot change the direction of the wind. Oh, very good. I like that. I loved it. I thought it's kind of right, though. We are facing circumstances that are outside of any government's control. The pandemic, the war and the energy crunch, demographic trends are largely out of the government's control. And these are the things which you can't just, you know, move tax rates a little bit and it'll make it all go away. (laughs) But also, you know, trying new things, I think, isn't a problem. 
I kind of respect them for trying to come up with a plan that would stimulate growth in the UK, which has been awful. There's no question about it. And, you know, I said when I made the video about the crisis in the first place, at least we've got a growth plan. I'm just worried that this will put future governments off creating these growth plans again in future. Well, I hope not, because the long term future of the UK does depend on you know, <laughs> returning to a reasonable level of growth. I guess my question is, are we now out of the woods? Do the bond markets love us again, except for that more on premium? And can the Bank of England just sort of get back on track now and get ready for quantitative tightening, like selling all its bonds? Well, they've delayed it. So they've delayed QT until there is more stability in markets, understandably. Yeah. And I guess they were keen to stress when they stepped in with the bond purchase over the past few weeks that this is not QE. We're buying bonds in huge amounts, but don't call it quantitative easing. (laughs) (laughs) But look, I think there are some benefits of this, which is that if you do want to buy gilts now, the yield curve is much more attractive. So if you're going to buy a one-year gilt, then you you can earn a yield at the moment of about 4% for a one-year gilt. If only inflation wasn't 10%. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that comes with a very low risk in terms of volatility. So you've got a choice. Do you put it into the FTSE 250, which has a yield of roughly the same with huge price volatility? Or do you lend money to the UK government with almost zero volatility or very low volatility? Yeah, the one year end of the curve is not going to move too much. That's right. But this is why a lot of people on Pension Craft have been talking about buying single gilts. Because if you buy a fund, you can be a false seller. Whereas if you buy a gilt, a single gilt, you can hold it to maturity. Yields can do whatever they want and you get your money back and the coupon. What do you mean you'd be a forced seller, potentially, if you hold a bond fund? Well, what happens is, if it's an open-ended fund, let's say that gilt prices fall. Well, what will happen inside the fund is they have to sell gilt in order to pay people their money back as they leave the fund. They and you don't control the timing of those sales, so they can crystallise a loss. Whereas if you buy gilt and the gilt prices are going down, well, you never have to sell. You never have to face the market ever again with the gilt. You just wait until maturity. And if it's a one-year gilt, then, you know, you just get your 100 back. So you know exactly what your capital gain or loss will be. And you know exactly what income you're going to get. Because it's very, very, very unlikely the government's going to default on their debt. So you know when you get paid, you know how much you get paid, you know how much you paid for the bond. So you know what return you're going to get. And all across the yield curve now, it's more than 4%. So that's, you know, pretty attractive, I think. I guess looking forward, the question is, are these pension funds that got into a lot of trouble, are they all fine now? Have they managed to unwind their risky positions or have their portfolios been thrown out of whack into weird weightings by having to move so fast? Have they lost their hedges? Well, they did temporarily lose their hedges in some cases, the ones which had outsourced their LDI funds to other companies. And usually these were very small funds. Now we find ourselves in a really good situation, which is that because yields are higher, the liabilities are smaller. And in fact, the funds are now better funded. The assets and liabilities match up much better. Yeah, that's the perverse thing about this. The higher bond yields are really good for pension funds. It's just the way it happened so quickly with yields rising was unexpected and almost blew them up in the meantime. Maybe we'll come out of this with a better pension fund industry. So that's not a bad thing. And a lot of these are kind of like legacy pensions. They're not often taking new inflows from current workers, right? Yeah, when I speak to people in power hours, it's very unusual to speak to someone who's got a defined benefit pension. And I always get very excited if they have. (laughs) 
Yeah, well, pension craft, right? You've got to get excited about people's pensions. Someone has to. But they're so unusual, you know, and it's so great for the people who hold them because they're not taking any risk in terms of shortfalls. So long as the funds don't blow up. I mean, if the funds had blown up, what would have happened? Presumably, the state is underwriting them. There's also the Pension Protection Fund, which has been created for this very purpose in 2004 in order to ensure that, you know, if this did go wrong for a few funds, then they could bail them out. But I guess there's a limit to how much they could spend. Yeah, if you imagine that the whole of the defined benefit pension industry went under... Oh, yeah, well... That's a trillion (laughs) pounds plus, right? That's like 100% of GDP added to national debt if you wanted to completely make them whole. That would have been catastrophic, and I don't think they could have bailed it out in any way. I mean, what's interesting about this whole episode is we've said, okay, we're in a regime change, rates are increasing really for the first time properly in 30-odd years, and in that environment, unseen risks come to the fore, which are potentially systemic. So if you said what's going to potentially blow up the financial system, I doubt many people would have said this obscure leveraged hedging strategy that defined benefit pension schemes are using, right? It's kind of this really <laughs> odd corner of the market, but yet it became so important so quickly. Are there other things that we could just see bubbling up and needing a kind of intervention from the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve in the US, for example? Well, I mean, just look at the usual suspects. It's anything which has leverage, which you don't really know about. And unfortunately, now we have a huge shadow banking system where these are like banks, which do the functions of banks, but without being a bank. A lot of that is in the crypto space now. But you've also got things like peer-to-peer lending and, you know, other pockets of leverage like the leveraged loan market in the US, which is very well documented. And of course, we've got leverage in China at the household level, but also at the corporate level. Dare I say it, we've also got record levels of government debt for a lot of sovereigns. I think that's less of a problem because as long as you can grow faster than your funding costs, then you can grow your way out of these debt to GDP problems. Yeah, but Roman, that is the biggest caveat I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) (laughs) You can write many, many growth plans, but are they going to work? Well, usually the funding cost is minimal compared to growth. In order for the dynamics to become unsustainable, you've got to have a combined period of low growth with huge spending, which is ongoing. Now, after we came out of the crisis, out of the COVID crisis, the spending fell dramatically and, you know, looked as if we were on a reasonable path to grow our way out of the debt to GDP spike. But of course, now what we've seen is the funding costs have spiked upwards. Inflation's very high. And unfortunately, in the UK, we've got a lot of inflation-linked debt. So I think that's going to be a problem if inflation stays high for a long time. But certainly at the moment, you know, we'll hear the latest update from the Office for Budget Responsibility and they'll talk about debt sustainability. I think eventually we will grow our way out of it, you know, just like we did after the Second World War. Here's my fear. You can hopefully reassure me is that the major central banks, the Bank of England, Federal Reserve, European Central Bank, are in the position where inflation's so high they're having to raise interest rates to fight inflation. Economics 101. But national debts are so big and there are these risks in the system that we've just seen the Bank of England having to start its bond purchases again. Are the central banks going to be forced by economic stability concerns to reverse course and loosen monetary policy before the job of fighting inflation is finished? And are we going to get runaway inflation? Because they can't blow up the financial system just because they're trying to fight inflation. Like, they could be boxed in. They could be in checkmate, as Lynn Alden put it. Well, usually what happens is if you do have a period of weak growth, people aren't going out and spending like gangbusters. Usually that has a breaking effect on inflation. 
In fact, one of the best cures for inflation is weaker growth and less demand. So, you know, I think this is kind of a self-correcting system in that sense. I mean, that's the whole reason behind raising interest rates. It dampens activity and makes a tight labour market less tight because there's less demand. I get it. But there is one thing that's changed since central banks ever had to fight inflation before, particularly in the US, which is that they now have long term fixed rate mortgages. So the pass through and the effect of raising the base rate is potentially less potent. I mean, we've seen them raising the rate as sharp as ever before in history and inflation has not yet abated. And, you know, it's shelter, which is now the new worry. That makes up 40% of the basket, the inflation basket. Yeah. Are they pumping the brakes and have found that the brake pedal's been cut? (laughs) (laughs) But look, any housing market relies on new people entering that market. For a certain period of time, you know, people can stay where they are. But there are natural reasons why people need to move. You know, if you have a baby or if you get divorced or if you die, you know, you're going to have to sell that house. So I think it's just natural that if rates rise, eventually there's going to be an effect, even if you have 30 year mortgages. Let's see. It's an interesting experiment. What's going to happen? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I'm kind of more sanguine about the outcome. Even in the UK, we only have two or five year fixes. Generally, some people can fix longer, but not many. But previously, we had much more people on just a pure variable rate mortgage. So I saw Andrew Bailey said the effect of monetary policy is slower and potentially less effective because there's much more fixed rate debt. Yeah, I think that's true. Now, I mentioned that one of the discussions we've had recently is about buying single gilts. So people have been sharing their experience on the pension craft forums. And that's one of the benefits of membership. You learn a lot from the other members. So if you want to join the conversation, you can learn more at pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is, what is a haircut? Roman, I can't think of anyone better to answer this question. (laughs) Whenever you get a haircut, I see on YouTube, the comments always go, oh, nice haircut, Roman. (laughs) (laughs) The confusion here is that there are two definitions. So let's say that you're a money manager and you want to borrow money from me and I'm the central bank. I'm the Fed, say. Your dream has come true, Roman. (laughs) (laughs) So I've got to risk lending you the money because you haven't got perfect credit quality. Sorry, Michael. Oh, man. It's true. Now, in return for the loan, right, I'm going to demand some kind of collateral from you in order to guarantee the loan. I'm going to give you one million of corporate bonds. Oh, dear. How much loan are you going to give me? Well, if it's corporate bonds, they're very risky. So I'm going to say the value of that collateral, even though it's worth 100 today. It's worth a million. (laughs) Well, so you say. But what if there's a credit crisis and spreads blow out? It's going to be worth a lot less. So I'm going to mark it down to 80% of its value. So you have to give me more than the value of the loan because the haircut's like 20%. So that's the haircut. It's the sort of gap between the mark-to-market value of the asset and how much you're actually going to loan me against it. That's right. For a very volatile or risky asset, it's going to have a bigger haircut. So for something like a government bond, there is a very small haircut or even no haircut? Yeah, so the Bank of England has a list of haircuts for a whole bunch of assets. So, for example, bonds issued by G10 government agencies, explicitly guaranteed by national governments of the highest credit quality. So even there, if it's got a maturity of greater than 30 years, that's going to be a haircut of 15%. Whereas if you just have a one year or less, it's only going to be 3%. And if we dial up the risk of the collateral to, say, high yield debt, so these are companies which may well default, There, even if it's just one year or less in maturity, it's going to be 20% haircut. 
And if it's 30 years or more, it's now 32% a haircut. So huge difference. So that sounds quite straightforward. But is that kind of related to the problems we've seen recently in the UK, where the volatility of supposedly safe assets has become much greater, therefore haircuts are getting bigger? Yeah, that's absolutely the problem. And therefore you've got to post more collateral. That's one of the consequences of huge volatility in the rate space, which is that the haircuts just have to get bigger. And the other definition, the one which people now refer to, is to do with sovereign debt. So let's imagine that you are somebody that's lent money to Greece during the sovereign debt crisis. God, I'm just making bad decision after bad decision today. (laughs) It was a mistake, Michael. I'm sorry to say that. But you've lent money to Greece. You bought their sovereign debt and it looks like they're not going to pay you back. They haven't got enough money. So what are you going to do? Well, would you rather receive 80% of the amount that you lent them or would you rather they default and don't pay you anything? Yeah, I'll take the 80%, but I'm not going to be happy about it. (laughs) (laughs) So that's all that's meant by a haircut nowadays for that particular context. So it's bondholders agreeing to write down the value of the debt. Yeah, but that's a kind of new definition. Colloquial term. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, usually when people talk about haircuts, they're usually talking about that collateral example we started off with. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. It would be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses, and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.